and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to become a member of our uh, paid community so you can um, yell at me on the, in the comments section like so many of our members do these days. And, um, um, and you can also find out uh, how many licks it takes to get to the bottom of a Tootsie Pop. And today's episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter and Hydrant. More about them in a little bit. All right, so... Uh, as I mentioned the other day, uh, you know we had, um, you know we had uh, Lucas Thompson and we had Luke Thompson. We had we had Matt Continenti on here, and uh, they didn't give me the rank punditry that I wanted, and so um, I had to go to A. B. Stoddard. And it just turns out that sometimes when you sometimes the the, the women folk they just deliver better than the the, the men folk do. And then we had Michael Strain on here, and we wanted some wonkery, and I just decided it wasn't pure enough, so I had to go to one of my favorite people in all the world and favorite writers, and the wonkiest woman I know who remains on the normal side of the spectrum. Um, she, all she does is, uh, is bake bread and know things and walk very large dogs. So, uh, Megan McArdle of the Washington Post, welcome back to the Remnant. Thank you for having me. Um, I also bake other things besides bread, but uh, been, I have been baking a lot of bread recently. So, um, but you were always you were a pre-pandemic baker. Yeah. So the funny thing about a lot of this is that uh, early on, when you know you had all these shortages and it was hard to get things, I joked that uh, everyone was suddenly trying to emulate my lifestyle and it was making it very hard for me to emulate my lifestyle. <laughs> so I've been working from home for 15 years. Um, and the thing about working from home, if you'd like to cook as I do, is that you, you have more flexibility to do stuff like, oh, it's 10 a.m. before I start, you know, I'm going to take a break having sort of lined up my topics for the day. I'm not going to take a break, saute up, my onions, my meat, and so forth. Uh, do my put it pop a braise in the slow cooker, and then I will go back to doing more work. And then you know you work later at the other end to make up for that. But you just have that flexibility that you don't have when you're in office. Um, and so yes, I had always been a bread baker. I've become much more of a bread baker now because there was a yeast shortage, and that required me to move beyond my kind of old trusty things and do a lot more sourdoughs. So I now have my weekly cycle where on Thursday I feed my sourdough starter. And on Friday, I mix up the bread dough. And then on Saturday, I bake the bread dough. And it's all very twee. Um, but yeah, I, I, I was doing this for a long time. I've gotten, I've upped my game in some ways. I, I now have, um, it's called a lame, which you use for cutting bread, which I always thought was sort of effete. Um, but, you know, I invested the $13. It's basically a razor blade. And it makes deeper, cleaner cuts in your, uh, in your bread. In your baked bread, not in the... No, 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 no. This is... Um, that's okay. That's why so I was you know confused. when you look at a loaf of bread and you look at it at a fancy bakery and it's got those... Those cool those scoring. Cuts on yeah. top. Yeah, 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 yeah. scoring. Uh, that is... Uh, you use... It's actually done with a razor blade. Uh-huh. Um, they're actually quite cheap. If, if any of the listeners are getting into bread baking, I highly recommend them. 
Uh, it's just a, a, a razor blade. They cost like 13 bucks. The, the cheap ones cost 13 bucks on Amazon. And because they all use a razor blade, the, the non-cheap ones aren't really any. They're much prettier, but uh, they aren't really any better. And if you are baking a lot of bread, it's worth, it's worth the investment. Make yourself feel good about it. When I visited my um, daughter in Zaragoza, Spain, uh, before she was ganged home, uh, she took us to one of her favorite bakeries where we watched this guy prepare the bread to go in the oven. And he used scissors for this like really cool pattern twisty thing that um, we've always wanted to replicate but can't even quite we're not even sure we saw what we saw but so you can do it so the great thing about this is about uh, the pandemic having a pandemic now I mean I would prefer not to have the pandemic now but given the pandemic um, is that there's YouTube videos of everything so I you know I had my kind of boring cuts that I'd always done and it turns out there's all these really fancy ones that look like wheat stalks and so forth so I've been doing more of those um, and that scissor technique is YouTubeable, um, and I think I know the one that because there are actually a number of them, but I think I know the one you're talking about. Uh, you do need very sharp scissors for it. So. I, that was my suspicion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, but I, look, I mean, I, I've said the same thing sort of on my podcast. I think partly because of our. I mean, I'm a little older than you, I think, but we're basically you're Gen X, right? Yeah, we're yeah. We're, we're the same age, and basically. and. It's, we came up at a certain time. We 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 grew up during the blogosphere era. Yes, and the um, good old days. And so I've been working remotely one way or another for almost twenty years, and it's amazing. All of these things that people used to accuse me of being antisocial about are now my virtue signaling my social distancing. Right. So like, <laughs> it, I've been like, sm- like I smoke in my cigar. I mean, I smoke I smoke cigars <laughs> in my car with the top down parked on city streets in DC, writing my column. And people think, well, that's a weird thing to do. And now it's like, right. I'm social distancing, you know, um, lots of that kind of stuff. And, um, no, I, I feel, I feel a little bit like, uh, I can't think of the right pop culture reference. It's, it's, you know, the, the Sardaukar and Dune are these warriors who grew up in this incredibly harsh climate that prepares them <laughs> all their life for battle, sort of like wax on, wax on off Karate Kid things. That's how I've been organizing my entire life for 20 years yes. is to get ready for the pandemic. I just didn't plan on having a kid who wanted to finish high school in a fun way, um, oh, which kind of yeah, ruins the whole thing, you know? Our dog is really upset because our dog is super social. And of course he's getting a lot of walks, but not right now because it's so hot and he's not, he's not a heat dog. He's like, he's a dog. If you take this dog out at like 4 PM uh, during the heat wave, it's like, he goes like half a mile and then getting him home is like the baton death march. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. every three seconds he flops down on his belly and just looks at you like, we're going to stay here for 10 minutes. Um, and listeners should know you have a horse sized dog. Yeah. I have a 160 pound bull mastiff. <laughs> yeah. It helps the visual a lot because yes. you, you could have been describing a beagle. True. But the beagle you can pick up and carry home the bull mastiff. You really can't. Um, I have thought about, you know, could you get one of those wheeled like Home Depot carts, <laughs> just wheel it along <laughs> next to him. And then when he's ready, you just push him the rest of the way. Um, but uh, he's really social and he loves seeing people. And that was the great joy because he's got a congenital neck injury. So since he was 14 months old, he's never been allowed to play with another dog, which is like the great tragedy of his life. He's the most social dog I've ever met. And the thing he was allowed to do was hang out with people. And now he's not allowed to do that either. 
and he is just like so angry at us. Total teenager, like you know, everything. You never let me go out. Yeah, let me see my friends. Yeah, I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) But you still owe me meat products. Okay. Yes. So uh, we should probably not. This is (laughs) this is how we would talk. If we weren't on a podcast, <laughs> yeah, sure. But we are, in fact, on a podcast. I don't know. I think listeners want a lot of really high quality dog related content. That's know, what's but, missing in the market right now. I believe the last time, or at least the first time you were on, I can't remember if this is your third time on or your second, but uh, I think it's your third. Third. Yeah, the first time on, we we went quite a long ways about the about dog economics and positional mm-hmm. goods and all of this kind of stuff. And everything I needed to know about about economics, I learned from my dog. Yeah, incentives um, matter. Um. So. You watched these. I only watched some of these hearings, mm-hmm. and my big. The, we're recording this on a Thursday. Wednesday was was by my calendar yesterday, and that's when the yes. big, the big tech yeah, hearings. Yeah, the big started. tech hearing. Okay, and so you watched the whole thing because my take on it was it was just a clown show from beginning to end. But I didn't. Maybe I missed some spontaneous eruption of quality or seriousness that, that everything is relative. And I should, I should preface this by saying Jeff Bezos was one of the four CEOs there. He owns my paper. Take that into account when listening. Uh, I have no inside information whatsoever about the operations of Amazon. Um, but you know, see, everything listeners can't see that we are um, also on video so we can see each other. And they didn't see you just like exaggerated winking while you were saying that. <laughs> that is not true. Stop it. I like my job. Um, and I said, you know, I should say Jeff Bezos looked extraordinarily handsome and he was witty, cogent, <laughs> brilliant in his replies. Um, no, I, I think that, I mean, I, so I actually, my objective opinion was actually that he did the best of the four CEOs and it was him followed by Zuckerberg, followed by uh, Sundar Pichai and, and followed by Tim Cook, just in terms of, uh, the Apple CEO had the easiest job because he has the least dominant market share um, and and yet managed to not to do the worst job with the excellent starting position he had. The hardest position was uh, the CEO of Google because everyone hates Google. Um, you know, Democrats are mad at Facebook. Um, Democrats are mad at Amazon. Republicans are like kind of desultorily mad at Amazon because they're just mad. But uh, but everyone is mad at Google. And so, you know, he was taking it from both sides, but also just it, it wasn't his his metier. Uh, Zuckerberg and, and Bezos seem to have thought about this a lot longer and harder. And I mean, and I mean, for years now and sort of been pre- more prepared for this moment than the other two. Um, but again, he owns my paper. Take that into account. Um, so, you know, when I compare this to, say, something like the banking hearings that followed the financial crisis, I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, there's no one saying things that are just purely batty. Um, you know, I remember there was a moment in the financial crisis hearings when Maxine Waters um, asked the uh, president of Bank of America a question so garbled that neither that the journalist following it had no idea what she was asking about. And there was this scramble of like, what, what, I don't, I don't understand. Like, what was that on Twitter? Um, and he was totally confused and like had no idea. And he looked, it was so sad. He actually, he looked like the fifth grade uh, kid who the teacher doesn't like and who is just like helpless and about to cry because the teacher's picking on him and he, is, he just does not even understand why. And it, it turned out, I don't remember what the details of it were. She had completely garbled 
some question about some minor thing with her constituents. And for those listeners who don't understand how congressional hearings work, um, it is rare for the, the, the politicians in question to actually understand what they're asking questions about. The questions are written by their staff. They're way too busy getting reelected to like actually understand any particular issue all that deeply. Um, but anyway, she had garbled it. And then he made the killer mistake, which they will actually, if you were getting coached to do one of these hearings and it's a hostile hearing, uh, they will tell you, do not do this. He asked her for clarification. And of course, because this, politicians have no idea what the question is, right? <laughs> she couldn't clarify it. She didn't know what she just asked. And so she got mad at him and just went to town on him. And then finally, the, C- the CEO of Citibank kind of intervened and was like, excuse me, I think I may know what she's asking. And he didn't. But he at least gave like, a question that was answerable. Um, and that is like the, the kind of bi- my baseline for these hearings. Um, and then usually what they are, if, if they go above that really bad level, they get to the level where uh, one side is determined. You saw this if people watch the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. This is a typical uh, example of this, of one side loves the person who's testifying and the other side hates them. And so it just alternates between uh, the side that hates them going, isn't it true, Mr. Smith, that like you like to kill puppies in your spare time? And then the, the other side will intervene and be like, Mr. Smith, I'd like to ask you about the fantastic work you've been doing on puppies and getting them amazing homes with like, you know, well, that, was the, that was the bar hearing, right? Yeah. So they cleared that bar. Actually, the, the questions they were asking were often relevant. Um, I mean, not always. Let's not let's not exaggerate here. Um, but they did ask questions that were about things that had actually happened, which is a nice change um, from some of these hearings. Uh, the questions made sense. The congressman appeared to like basically understand the content of what they were talking about. Um, I mean, so I, I tuned in when Jim Sensenbrenner asked the question about why the president's account was taken down from Facebook and he didn't know that that had happened to Twitter. Not Facebook. Yeah. And no, I mean, like I, I like, said, okay, click. <laughs> low bar. <laughs> we're, we're talking about a very low bar to clear. Yeah, I mean, there was a bunch of stuff. There was my favorite moment, uh, and I can't remember who it was. One of the Democratic uh, reps said, um, asked <laughs> Jeff Bezos about HBO Max on the Fire tablet, which I guess they're negotiating over. And, you know, one of the, like in the process of negotiating, they're trying to get HBO to provide other content on other platforms than Amazon controls. This is like all very standard stuff, right? And this was blown up into like the greatest anti-competitive maneuver in the world because definitely HBO Max is not going to succeed unless it gets on the Fire tablet. Because <laughs> when you've got 5% market share, like... It was just, it was so weird that the fire tablet was the thing you would pick. It's the Zune of 2020. Um, I mean, like, look, I, I'm sure it's, I've never tried it, so I can't, I'm, I'm sure it's a totally fine tablet, but it's, it's just, it's market share is so small. And they're like every other Amazon product is, you know, if, why didn't you pick like something with Alexa? Why didn't you pick something? Um, and so it's that sort of thing. Yeah, there were, there were those moments, but um, they were actually. I mean, they have they have real grievances. I'm not saying that I agree with their grievances, right? And, you know, I think the Republican grievances about shadow banning and all the rest of it. First of all, most of the the biggest Republican grievances are with Twitter, who was and 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 the CEO of Twitter was not there, um, and so they used Google as like a surrogate punching bag for those grievances. 
Um, and so you ended up with the long line of questioning about why, <laughs> why Google was preventing campaign had, had moved campaign emails to spam. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> Because they're they're spam. spam. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and it's not the idea that Google is like deliberately just moving uh, Republican campaign emails. It's just really unlikely. Um, They actually have a a semi-legitimate beef with with Twitter. I think it is overblown. There is a semi-legitimate beef with how YouTube chooses what to demonetize, which I think probably is does end up being influenced by the political views of the people making those decisions. But, you know, overall, I think they spent way too much time on that, but their constituents love it. So, you know. And so lay out for me what you think. Oh, first of all, just because you'll 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 like this and despair at the same time. Um, I can tell you who I'm referring to later, but uh, someone very close to me worked for a senator and had to make them little note cards for hearings that said um, Medicaid, poor, Medicare, old, because he could not keep them straight. Just getting to your point about politicians not actually knowing the substance. Yeah. Um, but, and in fairness, like, we ask them to know too much stuff, right? These guys, How much stuff do these guys have to vote on every year, right? Like, no, that, no, that's no person could be possibly expert in all of it. No, and I, I was giving a hard time to Sensenbrenner, but there are actually things that Sensenbrenner does know a lot about. Like, he used to be really good on space policy because it was something he cared about. He chaired a committee. I remember 15 years ago discovering that, writing a piece about the, the, the was it the Challenger disaster? Um, and anyway, um, but what is, what do you, th- what is, like, Every now and then, I'm almost persuaded that this Twitter's war on conservative stuff has merit. And then I squint and I look closely at it, and it just it kind of evaporates away. Um, notwithstanding the occasional, just like, basically anecdotal cases that do have merit, what do you think is the, the, the best case against Twitter from the right? Because I, I just have a hard time... Look, I mean, I think that the problem is that these decisions are so complicated that there's always going to be invidious comparisons to be made, right? So people are really mad when Twitter, you know, won't allow Donald Trump Jr. to broadcast this ridiculous video and where Facebook takes down this ridiculous video about hydroxychloroquine. They didn't take it down because of hydroxychloroquine. They took it down because the video said, don't wear masks, right? And... I think that there is, I have actually just real kind of like spidey sense discomfort with platforms doing that, honestly. Um, even at the same time as anyone who knows me or has followed me on Twitter knows that like, I am a, I'm a COVID hardliner. I have no patience with anyone who refuses to wear a mask. I am mean to those people. Like I try not to be because I, I think ultimately one against convinced against as well as of the same opinion still. Um, and I try, so I've sort of, I try to throttle it. Because I think, like, I have to persuade people. I can't just bully them into it. This is a democracy. But I am, this is not because I am sympathetic to, to that video. I just think, like, I'm not, I'm not, I think it probably in, in the long run does more harm than good to do these things because it becomes a big controversy and you're making this statement and then people don't trust the platform. That said. Um, okay, so that's the best case against Twitter is that they're doing something against their own no, interests? I think that, so, like, the thing is, Donald Trump, the private citizen, would have been banned years ago. True. Right? 
Um, but they leave him. And to liberals, that looks like you're, you're giving him special treatment. But on the other hand, <laughs> that same thing, which is we make an exception for heads of state, has also been made for Ahmadinejad of Iran, right? And that gives conservatives like you do stuff to, to Donald Trump's tweets and then you leave them in place. I think that like, which is why I don't want platforms getting into these decisions in the first place. I just think it's bad. But that said, the platforms do have to do things like take down the child porn or the, you know, like, or, or the people putting out hits on people, right? That is stuff that would happen if they didn't police it. It's just, these are, these, these decisions are really difficult. They're always going to be fraught. And so given that, look, Twitter has been much more out front with the fact that it, it, it sort of views itself as a liberal institution. All of these institutions are run by liberals, right? All of them are run by people who are of the left. Um, and for a long time, in what I think was just a giant mistake, they allowed their employees more and more to enjoy as a sort of consumption amenity the ability to do politics at work, right? And there's a reason companies have always cracked hard down hard on that. And Silicon Valley is now finding out what that reason is, which is that if you are doing politics at work, the party that doesn't agree with you is going to get into the act. Um, and you know, ultimately in a way that like really, so here's the thing about Google, their search business throws off so much money that almost everything else is irrelevant. Like it just doesn't matter what else they do. And they've got a monopoly on search and that's because search is a natural monopoly. Um, it would, it would make consumers worse off to break up Google search, but the fact is they have a monopoly on it. It is gigantically profitable. Um, And that has allowed its employees to like think that profits don't matter. And so, well, you've got, because they never have to really think about it that much. Like the money just keeps, it's just, there's marinating in money. Um, And so the, a a bunch of other stuff got stuck on top of the company and a lot of it's neat, right? Like Waymo is just like, there's funneling money and like, let's have self-driving cars. And it turns out that's really hard, but you know what? We're hemorrhaging money and here's some of it. Um, But some of it went into employees not, just getting really not focused on like, at the end of the day, we're a company. I enjoy my lavish paycheck at the courtesy of the fact that the company makes money and I should do things that make it possible for the company to make money. And so there's a lot of internal activism about things like, should they take defense contracts? Well, as you can imagine, that makes Republicans really, and I'm not like, I'm not defending in any way. So let me say that I'm saying this as like a as an empirical matter, I don't think that we should be intervening in companies to decide, like, we should not be bullying them into, like, making Republicans happy. That's bad, right? Um, we shouldn't be bullying them into making Democrats happy. Um, but to not have perceived that risk was as a, just now putting my business analyst hat on, I think a mistake. If And it got more and more kind of open and out there. It got reported on. And that has put a giant target on their back. I'm not defending the Republicans here. The Republicans are wrong, right? The Republicans, you should not use your power. Your power as uh, the political power that the American people have handed you is not to be used to prosecute your personal political beefs with a private company that hasn't done anything wrong, that hasn't done anything that violated the laws of the land. That's not the way you should be deciding these decisions. Yeah, or, um, I mean, to be fair, I mean, because again, I, I haven't heard anything that really, that, that convinces me Twitter deserves any... Right. Uh, most of the grievance getting. These companies could have done something wrong. I think we both agree that they've done things that are wrong. 
You know, Companies I, I think, are free to do things wrong as long as they're legal without Congress yes. giving them an yes. enema, right? I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think all of these companies have done wrong things, you know, like things that I disagree with, things that I think are wrong. Um, I mean, McDonald's canceled the McRib sandwich once. <laughs> That's outrageous. Well, the government know, should do something. Can't do to the. What? I'm sorry. As a libertarian, I remember. So I remember listening to an earnings call with the CEO of Harrah's, which is the casino company. And he, this is a fascinating story because he was a business school professor and he left business teaching business school to become a CEO and actually practiced what he preached, which is kind of crazy. Professors never do that. But so he does this and he's on the earnings call. He's super smart. And of course I love like academics and I'm listening to him. He's talking about how he'd instituted this, this novel program. All the casinos now have them, but when he did this, and this is, this must be almost 20 years ago that I was doing this. Um, he had instituted this program. It was a, a customer loyalty program. Um, and he uh, called them, he called the customers who in it was like their valued gamblers. And the longer he <laughs> talked how, how to monetize their valued gamblers, how to make it, and the longer he talked, the more I realized that what he was actually talking about was ways to monetize gambling addictions. Because yeah, most yeah. of the revenue of casinos <laughs> comes from people with gambling addictions. Um, and I like, it was intellectually very smart. And also like, I think it's immoral. I don't want to make it illegal for a whole bunch of reasons, but I think what he's doing is immoral. And I don't know how he gets up in the, I don't know how he got up in the morning. He was like, this morning, I'm going to see if I can push some dude into mortgaging his house to give me the money, um, you know, to lose the money at my blackjack tables. And that like, there, there are things that companies can do that are really wrong and that I still think should be legal. But I don't think, I think the stuff here, okay, a lot of it's using their competitive position, using mergers. So should companies be allowed to do mergers to buy companies that they think might threaten them competitively? Right? I think, yes, they should. But a lot of Democrats do not think you should be able to do that. Right? Um, and I think that allowing them to do that does forestall the competition, but it also adds value to the consumer. It allows them to integrate stuff onto their platform that they otherwise wouldn't have. And like I look at uh, you know, my MacBook, I don't want to have to install 97 different apps to do everything that just comes with my um, with my operating system. And almost no one does. Right. Bundling is valuable. And that was a lot of the heart of it. Um, the, the beef against Amazon is that they compete with their own sellers. And I actually like one of my uh, longtime readers is a seller. And I hear a lot about this from him. Um but the problem, you know, the problem Democrats kind of had was this is bad for those sellers, I think. But it's also, um, first of all, Amazon created a bunch of businesses that didn't exist before. None of these sellers really would have had businesses if it weren't for Amazon. But the second and even bigger problem is that Amazon competes with them by undercutting them on price. And they don't then, you know, the, the thing that Jeff Bezos kind of struggled in a back and forth with uh, a congresswoman from Pennsylvania um, was she was mad about diapers.com where he, like, the Amazon undercut diapers.com, this is pretty well reported, undercut diapers.com, um, they couldn't compete. Amazon bought diapers.com, and then she said, well, then you raise the price, and I, I'm going to, well, let us assume, arguendo, that that is the correct uh, account of what happened. You know, what he was trying to say, and she kept cutting him off before he could point it out, is that, like, Amazon is in competition with Walmart. If you, you know, yes, they could raise the price over the ridiculous deal they were giving consumers, but at the end of the day, they can't charge you like $5 billion for diapers. They can only charge you enough to like make it worth for you to order from them rather than driving to Walmart. And, um, 
you know, so while it is true, like Amazon has a really huge share of e-commerce and that matters. And especially in a lot of sort of smaller things and things like things that Best Buy used to sell that you're just, you know, you're not going to drive 40 minutes to a Best Buy when you could order the same cable, even for twice as much on Amazon. Uh, But they're also in competition with their own resellers, right? You know, they can't. Um, And so, you know, to some extent, there's just a limit on how much market power they have because bricks and mortar retail in a lot of the categories they cover survives and will continue to survive. Um, But that's, but all of that is like a legitimate argument about, you know, that I think, I think has the, you know, the, the anti antitrust side has the better argument, but you can make that argument. And it wasn't just kind of crazy stuff. The stuff about Twitter, I like, I get why Republicans are super uncomfortable having massive parts of the information infrastructure controlled by, let us say, hostile territory. And I think this feeds into a bigger argument about the media and academia and so forth. But I actually think their bigger beef is with like Twitter mobs than it is with Jack Dorsey, right? I think it is the bigger beef is the larger stuff that is happening at corporations and HR departments um, and that fighting with Google about whether Gmail is putting campaign messages into spam is not a particularly productive way to go about that. You know, normally this is the kind of time where I would come up with a really interesting uh, sort of uh, enticing non sequitur that turned out to be a segue to an ad. Unfortunately, I'm recording this ad long after I had the conversation, so this will have to suffice. And that's why I want to talk to you about ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be difficult, but if you're a company that's currently trying to hire, you face new difficulties from safely reopening your doors to finding the right person for a specialized role. HousingWire could relate. They needed to hire an ambitious reporter to cover news stories on the U.S. mortgage and housing markets. So they turned to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's smart matching technology finds people with the right experience for your job. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And that's how HousingWire found Alexandra Roja. Alexandra never imagined she could get a reporter job in the midst of COVID-19. Hiring was frozen, and the idea of looking for a job was discouraging. So she created a profile on ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter matched Alexandra to HousingWire's reporter job because her degree and writing skills were a great fit for the role. HousingWire received their application only four hours after they posted the job. And a few weeks later, Alexandra started her dream career. ZipRecruiter helped Alexandra find the right job, and they helped HousingWire find the right person for their role fast. See how ZipRecruiter can help you hire. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo, D-I-N-G-O. We thank ZipRecruiter for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So um, I want to get off the, the hearing stuff in a second, but it kind of this is a good segue point. Um, um, before you mentioned how Google, because of search, throwing off all this money, it figured it could throw a lot of perks to its staff by, you know, basically... Um, turning Google into the vast college campus at the end of history where everybody gets the virtue signal and live their best selves and, and all the rest. Um, 
And I get that, and I think you're right about that. And then they learn, oh, crap, like there's reasons why the Ramjack Corporation and, you know, whatever didn't allow their employees to do this kind yeah. of thing either. Should have spent more money on the in-house masseuses, right. less money on the in-house activism. And so I, this is one of these themes that I love to look for all sorts of places. Uh, the great, you know, sort of to borrow a phrase from Tom Wolfe, the great relearning, where people think they have found some off-ramp from how the world has yes. always worked. They found some off-ramp from the rule that there's nothing new under the sun. And... And they just think the old rules don't no longer apply to them, right? And, um, and you know, Wolf did this fantastic essay called "The Great Relearning," where he begins by telling the story about how the in in the in Haight Ashbury in '68 during the Summer of Love, all these doctors started discovering all of these really gross diseases and maladies um, <laughs> that no yeah. one had seen since like the 19th century in medical textbooks because they had just all been washed away by bourgeois hygiene and middle-class life yeah. and whatever. And um, and so your point about Google discovering that, hey, oh, it turns out that, you know, old Fortune 500 companies knew something, um, seems to me the same thing is going to happen. First of all, I'm very skeptical. It's a parlor or parlay. I don't know. I'm not sure yeah. I care. Uh, but <laughs> Dan Bongino is very cross with me for, for throwing shade at, at parlor. Um, which, as you can tell, I'm I'm heartbroken about. But the stuff that you're talking about, right? He's like, at, for people who can't see, he's actually weeping. Yes, openly weeping. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the point you were making about how you know, look, you your spider sense goes off when you see, you know, platforms shutting things down or or, or leaning into censorship. I get that, but then you said, but they also got to deal with like shutting down the pedophiles and making sure people don't threaten each other. Yeah. My hunch is, is that, you know, because there's a variant, so there's a variant of this great relearning thing that happens on the right, because the right has been obsessed with creating new institutions, you know, for a very long time, and I've been very skeptical about that project for a very long time. And so all these people fleeing to parlor are going to discover, holy crap, these neo-Nazi people are really are a pain in the ass and they're making us look bad, right? And they're yeah. going to start shutting them down. And it's going to turn out that a lot of the decisions that Twitter makes, not all of them, to be sure, because I think you're absolutely right, the sort of Gramscian march the institutions of the left-wingers have taken over these places. There's a lot of truth to that. But at the same time, a lot of the stuff that we ascribe ideological uh, uh, evil intent to turns out to have a lot more practical decision-making involved to it than, right. than we realize. And if Parler's successful, it's going to look much more like Twitter than than not in terms yeah. of free speech policing in the next 18 months. Yeah, I, I think uh, Slate Star Codex, my one of my favorite blogs, had this great post on what happens. The problem with creating an explicitly, like, we're not going to censor stuff institution is that you end up with people for whom that's really valuable because what they're saying, because what they really want to do is post funny jokes about the Holocaust that they have sent to Jewish people. Right. Um, and you were air quoting funny there. Just yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Like I, I should, um, right. They, they want to, I mean, I got some of these during the great, uh, trumpeting, uh, in 2016, um, because they had, I, I, had, I had in a gesture of solidarity, 
um, people were putting uh, parentheses around their Twitter handles because uh, this was a way that the neo-Nazis were using to refer to Jews. They would put three parentheses around their names. Um, And so a bunch of these troglodytes decided, oh, secret Jew. Um, And like, you know, I grew up on the Upper West Side. So actually, like, I I spoke- You know some of the handshakes. Yeah, no, like, I I, I spoke pretty good Yiddish until I was five. (laughs) um, Because my babysitter spoke Yiddish. And and so, like, this, just apart from the fact that this is appalling, et cetera, like, I do have this little part of me that kind of identifies much more Jewishly than, like, your average Irish Catholic wasp girl does. Um, So I was, like, extra sickened um from that um and it was just appalling and but those people exist i don't think there's actually all that many of them they can feel hugely numerous on twitter but like you know 3000 people is a drop in the bucket of the us population but it feels when when you discover that there are 3000 people in the world who think that it is funny to make jokes about um sh- shoving you into an oven um you are sick properly sickened by this um, but all of those people are going to go. And then the problem is that, you know, as a percentage, when especially when you're trying to start up, right, when you're just trying to move and you've, say, managed to move 400 people, you're now outnumbered by by the gross Holocaust jokers. Um, and then that kind of scares people away and you end up with a site that's all Holocaust jokes. And I think that that dynamic is extremely, extremely, extremely hard to co- uh, overcome. And I think it it also explains a lot about conservative media. Um, which is that um, this is something that the left, uh, that Ross Douthat says, and I think this is correct, is that, you know, the the right-wing media really does ha- fail to do things. Now, now I'm not talking about publication, you know, I, opinion idea magazines like, uh, like National Review or the Weekly Standard, things that were kind of in a normal ecosystem of, of media, but um, the kind of emergent sites, the talk radio, um, like they traffic in open conspiracy theories in a way that the left wing mainstream, the, by the way, the mainstream media is left wing. I've been pretty frank about saying that in my columns, um, but they don't traffic in conspiracy theories in the same way. And actually one of my worries is that as they've gotten more explicitly left wing, that tendency is actually getting worse is it's like people, it's easier. People are, are moving to, they're more prone to it, but they still do more fact checking, better fact checking, et cetera, um, than the right has. And, 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 there's a lot of shade thrown by the left in the media about that. And my response has always been like, guys, you shoved the conservatives out of the media and that left them with the choice of going to found an explicitly conservative institution and an explicitly conservative institution cannot act like a mainstream institution because the only people who subscribe to your explicitly conservative institution are people who are looking for explicitly conservative content. And so then you have to serve that audience in a way, right? Like, they're not just coming to you to find out what the weather is. They want everything served with a dose of conservatism. Um, and I think that's bad. But I think that you have to recognize that a big part of that was the pushing as well as the pull. And um, and that is another reason that I'm, I'm really like, I, I want the banning on these platforms to be done with as light a hand as possible. We don't need more niche spaces where everyone is like super into, we need more public squares uh, that are where people behave decently. Right. But I think I ran a comment section for 50 until I left Bloomberg. Um, 
and I've just, I gave up when I went to the post cause it's so, it's so much bigger. It's, it's beyond me. I don't have time. Um, and because I was starting over from scratch and everyone I was getting were post commenters. And for me to attempt in my little part of the pool to enforce norms was impossible because we just get a new flood in every time I hit the homepage. Um, but until then for 15 years, I ran a comment section almost, and everyone says, Oh, you have to, you have to ban people. I didn't, I almost never banned anyone. I, the only people I banned were people who came in and just repeatedly screamed at other people would, you know, would do like 200 comments on one thing that was just all like repeating themselves, but you had to be abusive forever. I banned, I don't know, 20 people my entire time, 15 years. And the way I did that was that every time someone violated, I walked in and I was like, that's not how we behave here. And the other commenters would make fun of them. They would exclude. And eventually the other commenters would be like, this person has to be banned. Right. Um, you can do it. It just takes work. Oh, no, it, 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 it takes like resources, parent, too. No one wanted to do the work <laughs> except me. I was like this weird, I ran one of the only decent comment sections on the, I, I will say, she said, praising herself. No, we um, struggle with this issue at the dispatch. We really, really yeah. want to keep commenting. And every now and then we got to tap people on the shoulder and say, yeah. really, this is, is this why you paid for to be a commenter is to do this? And they tend to de-escalate pretty quickly, but yeah, exactly. And, and just reminding them that there's a human being there. Like one of the most effective things I used to do is like, w- was just to say, my father reads this blog and the comments and they would just get really like, <laughs> Oh my God, I can't believe I just said that. Like, um, no, um, you, it's funny. The, the, the slate star codex point it's, 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 I made this a similar point about was it chop or Chaz or whatever that it ended up, would have been <laughs> yeah. called, right? If you declare a place, it seems to be axiomatic that if you declare a place a police-free zone, it will attract at least two kinds of groups, two kinds of people. One, mm-hmm. really idealistic, sweethearted people who think you really don't need police in this world. And predators. And really bad people who are psyched for the opportunity to prey on doe-eyed fools <laughs> um, because there are no cops around, you know? Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's really hard to... To, to, to scale up to where you have enough good people to self-police. And that's sort of like what you're doing with the comment section, right? Is yeah. it, 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 but it's, at the same time, if someone had come in and been like, here is my child porn site, I would not have been like, we don't do this around here. Right. I would have been like banned and reported to the police, right? This is not... Also, um, my, fa- my father reads this comment section as sounds too creepy in response to that. Uh, no, so fun story. Uh, my, so one in my book, um, this is a slight tangent, but it's amusing. So I'm going to tell it, uh, in, so my book, I'm really bad with titles and headlines and I always have been. And my book, my agent pulled a, uh, I had advice for young writers, which is, I said, like, you know, a lot of people get writer's block and they just, I, you've seen this too. I'm sure young writers who sabotage by just not turning stuff in Mm -hmm. like repeatedly, and my theory about those people, and I've had some success with talking people through this, is um, th- to let them understand that, like, yes, you were the best person in your writing class, you were the best person on your college newspaper, and now you're playing in the big leagues, and, like, everyone's better than you, and that's okay. You just give yourself permission to suck, say, like, I, I'm writing a thousand words, and even if it is, like, just gibberish, if it is all all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, you got to write those thousand words, you can rewrite garbage, you cannot rewrite nothing. And I do this to myself when I have writer's block. Um, and so my editor pulled that out and made it the, 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 
the title of the proposal and neither of us realized what the, and my editor also didn't realize. And we, so it was proposed. It went through quite a lot as the title. And then someone in marketing was like, if we keep this title, it's going to end up in the wrong section of the bookstore. What, 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 what was the title? Permission to suck. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, no, not. You know. It didn't occur to any of us. Like, we're so naive. Yeah. It was like at The Economist when I launched a blog. They, I, I actually didn't like this name, so I was glad when it got killed. But um, the name right up to two days before launch was uh, Economics Exchange. And then someone pointed out that uh, the URL was Economic Sex Change. <laughs> Um, so yeah, anyway, this is total tangent, uh, back to the main. All right. But so back to, um, what's happening with conservative media and, and all the rest. I don't know if you saw it. I, I, I kind of, I, I, I urinated on it from a great height. Um, <laughs> uh, Charlie Kirk had this video, this video of his podcast where he went on for, uh, three or four minutes with, what what is the line from the Billy Madison movie where Mr. Madison what you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard at no point in your rambling incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it I award you no points and may God have mercy on your soul. It was so bad from beginning to end about masks, about the arguments against masks. He was, he says that whenever he goes, he refuses to wear masks in grocery stores. And when people approach him and tell him to put on a mask, he says, well, the first thing I tell them is that the science on masks is very questionable. And already I'm like, I don't believe you are telling grocery clerks that the science on masks is very questionable, right? I mean, this is, this is all made up stuff. And, um, and then he just goes on and on and on with this stuff about how uh, masks are questionable. They may even make you sick. Um, uh, and how uh, there's this huge liberty issue where he then invokes the argument about for, for pro-choice, about my body, my choice, whatever happened to that, which is a very strange thing for a pro-lifer to yeah, do. Yeah, what? Yeah, no, but it's just like it's like non sequitur. It's like it's 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 like one of Joe Biden's worst sentences. It's just it just goes weird places. But one of the remarkable things about it is that he looks like he is doing a Tucker Carlson impersonation throughout the entire thing, which I think is just an interesting bellwether. But the other thing is, I and I'm sure you saw the Louis Gohmert thing yesterday, right? Or today? Yeah. Yesterday, yeah. So Louis Gohmert now is trying to tell people that maybe just asking questions, just possible that wearing a mask is what gave him COVID. And well, in, in fairness, there is like a slightly more charitable reading of what he said, which was fiddling with the mask might have given, which is actually, they do tell you, don't fiddle with your mask. Put it on, take it off, you know, pinkies through the ear loops. Do not like keep moving it around on your face. But I don't really think that's what he was trying to say. Yeah, it's certainly, it, 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 he was not trying to convey the idea that masks work and that they are an important tool of epidemiology in public health, right? And um, I mean, I have my own theories on this, but do you have an omnibus unified field theory of how and why 
not only did Trump make or that the, the right made masks a culture war totem, but why it was successful. I mean, like no one's made washing your hands into like, oh, you're a cuck beta male if you wash your hands. I mean, everyone washes their hands. But if you wear a mask, for a lot of people, it's all wrapped up in manhood and patriotism in ways that I, 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 I'm not surprised that Trump did it because his vanity said, I don't want to wear a mask. He thinks it looks weak. But that it caught on like wildfire as a thing. Well, in part, it's something that you can shame people out of, right? You, you're you not going to know if someone's washing their hands. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> Follow them into the bathroom and be like, dude, what are you doing? We're Americans. We don't wash our hands. Um, I am... I am. I find this totally mystifying. I find it totally mystifying. First of all, that pro-lifers would say, and I think, by the way, this is a legitimate argument. Um, I'm not pro-life myself, but I've always found this a, a quite compelling argument and one that I think that you have to you have to engage with in the public sphere. Um, that while there are risks to pregnancy of wrecking your body, of dying, of having serious long-term complications. Um, that they just don't outweigh the fact that if you have an abortion, there is someone who had right now have been sitting and maybe listening to this podcast, walking around, enjoying things, falling in love, right? Having all of these great moments. And they, that none of that will ever happen. You will extinguish that universe at the moment when you have the abortion. Um, and that's totally legitimate to say like, yes, I understand I'm imposing a personal cost on you, but the, the cost of, of what you're doing is so much higher that I feel justified doing that. And then to turn around and go, but wearing a piece of cloth across your face, like being pregnant for nine months and then having, and then being a parent for the rest of your life, that, that is justifiable, but not wearing a piece of cloth across your face. Like what is up with this? How dare you say my body, my choice? Like, honestly, how dare you? Normally, this is the moment where I would come up with some sort of pithy segue to talk about one of our sponsors. But I'm actually recording this after the conversation took place. Also, I might not be able to do it if I'm dehydrated. And that's why I want to talk to you about hydrant. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise or meditation, but not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc, sweet zinc, help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There's no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a pack for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. So, for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com. Dot com and enter the promo code DINGO at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, promo code DINGO for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, promo code DINGO. Do it. Do it now. We thank Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. So I was friends with Bill Bennett for a very long time, and I, I 
would love to have a rapprochement of some kind, but early in the pandemic, he and Seth Liebson, another guy I've known forever, you know, friends back in the day, wrote several pieces, basically going full, not full COVID truther, but it'll never reach 60,000. But even if it is 60,000, that means it's just the flu, yada, yada, yada. Um, this is not why you shut down the economy. We got to get the country back to work. Apparently on his podcast, he said he's really sick of these shutdowns because he wants to get back to Vegas. And he used to be one of the foremost spokespeople for the pro-life position and the seamless garment of life position and, 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 all, and protecting the vulnerable. And I just don't get it. I mean, like, I'm, I, I, I am nominally pro-life. I mean, I, I have a sort of nuanced position on it that bothers yeah, a lot of Chris, so probably you and I are actually quite close to Yeah, <laughs> to my, my, my guess is, is uh, I'm just over the line on the pro-life label and you're just over the line on the pro-choice yeah, label, right? Yeah, basically, that's about right. And, um, uh, but I've always found the pro-life argument, like when Ramesh makes, I will not argue about abortion with Ramesh because you know, I'll just lose, you know? No, yeah, and, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't either. He yeah. knows way more than I do about He it. knows a lot of things about abortion. And, um, and, and has thought about it very deeply. Yeah, and he's, and he's passionate about it and he's serious about it and all the rest. But so were a lot of people who are now saying you shouldn't wear a mask because it's a surrender to tyranny. Um, and you know, there's just, a kind of there's a weird there is like this weird. So let me let me see if I can unearth the charitable nuggets in here because as I say, I'm like I'm I'm really not very patient with this argument, um, but I'm going to try to be because I'm an adult um, and I should engage with my opponents charitably. So. Number one, I think there, there's a sorties paradox here, which is like the fact is that it is true. Every time we leave our houses, we accept some risk of death. Every time we leave our houses, we accept there's some risk that we have a disease that we could, you know, and the problem is normally it's like a one in a zillion chance that we are going to give someone else, right? I have a cold. I pass it to someone who's having cancer treatment or just gotten an uh, organ transplant and is, uh, and you know, they die from it. That's something that could happen. It is really, 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 really minuscule. Um, but then you say, well, there's a spectrum and, and why, why is one okay and the other not? And you, you know, at some point we are just going to draw an arbitrary line and say like on this side, not okay on that side. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, honestly, we're probably going to shift that arbitrary line. I would say that even, you know, knock wood, there's going to be a vaccine and we're going to all go back to pretty normal lives. Um, but I would say that like coming to the office with a cold is no longer going to be an acceptable thing to do. And that's good. Actually, we, you should not have been like, no, I'm, I'm a, I'm a tiger. I go to work with the flu and infect my coworkers. Um, and I think companies are going to have to think about how do you accommodate that? How do you make sick leave policies that don't allow people to abuse them because some people will, but at the same time, um, prevent people from coming in uh, sick to work. We're going to need, that's going to need to be a, a real conversation. Um, so I think that that's part of it. Another part of it is that, let's be honest, public health experts beclowned themselves yes. over the protests. Yes. Um, and in just such a, a blatant way. And like, I, I get it. Like systemic racism is a big problem. Systemic racism does kill people. I wrote a cold column, like, you know, conservatives, you're wrong on this. Systemic racism kills. We'll, we'll leave that maybe for another day. But let, let us just stipulate, I believe that systemic racism kills. I also believe that going to church saves lives because not because like I am religious, but because there's data showing it. People who go to church live longer. 
the public health experts weren't like, well, on the other hand, people who go to church live longer, so we should let people go to church, right? Um, it was entirely selective of causes that they believed in. And honestly, I think part of it was that a lot of them were afraid to say anything. And so it was less a decision. This is not true of all of them, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was true of a fair number. It was less a decision um, to say something because they wanted to help the cause. And I believe in the cause. I think that black people are and, and minorities are disproportionately targeted by police. I think it is an indignity. I think that white people who say, but they commit more crimes would never. I think we've seen this with COVID, right? We For years, I've, I've watched conservatives talking about criminal justice and they're like, well, but statistically, blacks are overrepresented among those who commit crimes and victimization studies. That is true. Um, but none of these conservatives would in any way have ever tolerated a police officer, like just singling them out and hassling them regularly, pulling their car over, stopping them to check for pretextual stuff because they looked like someone else who committed a crime. They get really mad when, when the left lumps them all in with the neo-Nazis, right? Um, they would never have accepted it. They were willing to accept it because it wasn't happening to them. And we saw this with COVID where suddenly when they had to live under some of the, the restrictions, that other people in terms of cops just coming up and being like, I'm breaking up your baseball game. They got super mad. <laughs> so like this should have given them more empathy about this. And instead what it did was just, I mean, a lot of it is Trump. A lot of it is just Trump telling people like, you know, I'm too manly to mask and making it a litmus test for your participation in the movement. And it's, so it is, you know, I, I hate the headlines that called Republicans a suicide cult, but there is like this element of you are being asked to do so, you're being asked to do something that is unsafe and pointless in order to demonstrate your loyalty to your fellow conservatives. And it's ridiculous. No, I agree. It's ridiculous. I mean, and again, I'm not a mask absolutist. If I'm alone outside. Yeah, I don't wear a mask. I walk my dogs in places. You know, my dogs help me socially distance in all sorts of ways. And if I see someone coming and it looks like, and if they've got a mask and it looks like their kind of person wants me to have a mask, I'll, put, I'll flip my mask on or whatever. I do not for the life of me understand people who drive around alone in their car with masks on. Uh, um, I mean, they may have. I, so I, as, as if they're not know, Uber we were talking about before this, I took care of my dad when he was COVID positive. Yeah. And so for me, it would actually wasn't even that I felt like I had to drive around with my mask on in a car. I'm not a moron. Um, but it was often that I had been somewhere uh, and I didn't like, once I put the mask on, I had put it on sterile and I wanted to just make sure that like I was staying sterile for the whole trip and then returning in one trip rather than like possibly contaminating it. That was, so there may be some of that, but I think mostly it's just, yeah, being I, paranoid. I don't, I mean, I, I, I admit I could be, I'm judging from afar, but I do not get the vibe of uh, hygienic fastidiousness that you are ascribing <laughs> to some of these people, but fair. fair enough. But the thing that I kind of find fascinating is so Trump 10 days ago, I think, decided, okay, I'm going to take the pandemic seriously um, again, right? He's going to start doing the daily briefings again um, because he had some poll numbers that said unless he is seen as handling the pandemic well, the economy's not going to get open. His poll numbers aren't going to go up. He's got to do this for, you know, purposes. Now, not at all shockingly, he has not managed to stay on theme, but he did come out and reverse himself on masks. 
the Louis Gohmert thing, the Charlie Kirk thing, a bunch of these others that I've seen around. They're still on anti-mask mode, even though the president has changed his tune, which is, I mean, maybe it's the latency and the lag, lagging indicator effect that like once you're bought, a lot of these people that are bought into it, it could also be that for the same reason that Ted Cruz is all of a sudden against big spending again, um, <laughs> that a lot of these people are now positioning post-Trump and um, uh, and they no longer feel as, as required to take their lead from Trump. But there's also just something in the water, as it were. I mean, well, it, let me, so let me let me offer an alternate theory. Um, so I have a rule uh, that I developed over many years of, of writing on the internet. It was hard. This was a hard one rule that I did not learn nearly as quickly as I wish I had. Uh, and that rule is: do not go full frontal jerk on the internet. Do not um, do what? I'm sorry. Never go full frontal jerk on the internet. Um, the word jerk is replaced with something more pungent sometimes. Um, and the reason that you don't do this, there's two reasons. First of all, you just shouldn't be a jerk, right? It's, it's, but second of all, if you go out and you, so you see something that you think is dumb for some reason and you lace into it, you talk about how dumb it is. You go on and on and on about the moron who wrote it and their, their poor values uh, their, their lukewarm IQ, probably their indifferent personal hygiene. And then you find out you misread them or that in fact, you didn't understand the topic nearly as well as you thought you did. And they do. And sadly this happens. Um, I mean, I have never happened people, to me. Never, never, well, never, never once. Not, it, in the present know, company excluded. Yeah, 10 million words on the internet written never once happened to me. <laughs> so, you know, I've had people who like, it's kind of hilarious that I'll have like, it, it's often dudes. I will say there's a grain of truth to mansplaining because it's almost always dudes who will come up and like start officiously lecturing me on some really basic thing about economics and I don't even bother anymore, but my com- my people who follow me on Twitter would be like, dude, you know, she's been writing about this for 20 years. <laughs> she worked for The Economist, you know. What are the odds that she actually doesn't know? What like, GDP you know, stands for. <laughs> what marginal wage means, right? Yeah. Like, um, And so anyway, the, if you do that, you're now in this terrible position. Because if you just said like, look, I don't think this is right. I think, you know, you would then, someone would be like, no, you've misunderstood me or you don't know actually this thing. You'd be like, oh, oh, okay. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Let's get coffee sometime. But when you insulted them and, and just generally made an ass of yourself, you now have two choices. You can either, the correct choice, by the way, is always groveling and immediate apology. I don't know what I was thinking. I'm, I'm, just appalled at my own behavior. This was terrible. Um, on and on and on and on and on. The incorrect choice, which was that almost everyone chooses, is to try to find some way to salvage it so that you're still right. Um, and you just make yourself look like more of an idiot. Um, and in this case, expose yourself to the risk of COVID. Um, but it's so hard psychologically to get over that, which is why I try to forestall that in the first place by just not just insulting people like that. I mean, there are exceptions. If people come after me or someone I really care about, um, and I am definitely 100% sure that they are incorrect, I will mirror their own tone back to them, but I never go on the offensive first. So your point is, is that these people who are locked in on the 
the mask stuff they or just walk themselves right they 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 went out and talked about how math you know uh wearing a mask was an affront to liberty and how only you know weak fearful little pansies who are tied to their mama's apron strings wear masks and they, they're in a position where if they back down now and say okay actually masks and they're actually i think they're trying to but the problem is it's not fast right? Like that climb down has to happen over months where you just sort of gradually stop mentioning masks. And then one day someone notices you is, you know, like one day, nine months later, someone asks you why you're wearing a mask. You're like, yeah, I, I changed my mind about that. But to do it on a dime is impossible. And that's what they're, I think that's what they're trying to do is preserve face. Okay. So this perhaps jarring, perhaps uh, serendipitous conclusion to uh, the conversation is not actually a conclusion. It's just the end of part one of my conversation with Megan. We went long. We decided not to throw any of it away. And uh, we decided to make it a two-parter in part because I'm out of town. And um, that's just how I'm rolling. And so uh, stick around for the next episode uh, where we will continue the conversation and do uh, go down some memory lane stuff about New York and, um, and just have a grand old time. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.